Hey everybody, this is Mikey D. Welcome to my stoop. A long time ago, hidden off in the northeast corner of a big city, there was a small American town called East Harlem. There were many faces, but no Facebook. Some twits, but no Twitter. We didn't have computers or cable TV, no VCRs, DVDs, DVRs, no iPhones or Xboxes. We had no 24-hour news cycle. One hour a day was more than enough. And you could count the number of friends on one hand, and that was plenty. And we didn't use a device when we wanted to socialize. We opened the front door and stepped out to our stoop. It all seems like an ancient time, like some lost city, like a myth. As if I had witnessed it all from the stoops of Atlantis. If necessity is the mother of invention, then boredom is the grandma to necessity. We didn't have any computers at that time, no video game machines, no handheld devices, no virtual toys. And if it was summer, well, then being inside was an anathema. So we needed to provide, to invent, to problem solve. And we were the grasshoppers to the wiser, older kids on the block. And they would pass their knowledge on to us. Knowledge of games, toys, and ways of, well, manipulating the environment and the objects around us for hours of fun. And it really always started with a Spalding. The pink high-bounce ball made by Spalding Company. We called them Spaldines. Some people called them Spaldinas. But in any event, these little pink puppies were a staple to summer fun. Spaldines were the jack of all games, the master of fun. You could play stickball, handball, my favorite stoop ball, or you can try to roof it. Now, roofing a ball was an art in itself and a real major accomplishment. What was roofing? Well, simply that, throwing a ball so hard and high, it gets up onto the roof. And what was fun about my building, we had a backyard. So if you managed to roof it, it would roll along the top of the roof while we ran through the hallway, through the kitchen, into the backyard, just in time to watch that ball, that Spalding, fall from the rooftop right into our hands. And to catch it, well, that was a perfect roofing. Most Spaldines were third, fourth, or fifth-hand generations, found in the street or an empty lot. Occasionally, you'd use your allowance to buy a brand-new spotless pink ball, with its black Spalding logo printed dark and bold. But that little prized pink pig would soon be scuffed, spotted, and worn after just a few hours, slamming it at the edge of stoops, splashing in filthy puddles, or in dog poop, then bounced off the heads of your closest friends, often in that order. Then the victim, pissed off, would roof it on the wrong side of the street, and that great time passer would join the billions of lost Spaldines waiting like abandoned kitties for someone to rescue them. But that would be another day. Interestingly, Spalding stopped making the Spaldine in 1979, which is about the time that Asteroids and Pac-Man came out. Now, that's for future stories. I confess I was an Asteroids junkie. But it seems like our tastes and our interests did change in that summer of 79-80. In the meantime, we needed to move on to some other source of secret knowledge, some other way to pass the endless minutes that were but a single day 
and the freedom of summertime. We called it street checkers on our block, but most people called it scullies. Yeah, and those free-spirited, dangerous days we actually played in the middle of the street, with traffic going, one person would keep their eye open for the cars. And it was a simple game, but very addictive. It was made up of a playboard made with square boxes, each numbered. And you each had a checker, was the game piece, and these pieces were made either by uh, taking a bottle cap and filling it with melted crayon, or you can take a poker chip or two poker chips, glue them together, and can use that. That was my favorite method. And the more esoteric, more exotic way was to scrape the ring at the top of a Coke bottle right off the bottle and use that. Now that in itself was an art. And it was a sound you would hear in summer, this clink clinking of glass on metal. Uh, if you look at the curb of, a, of any city street, there's a little spot where two pieces of curb are butted up against each other, and one is usually a little higher than the next. And you would take this bottle, the Coke bottle that had that the ring at the top. Now these were the bottles that needed a bottle opener to open. They're rarer nowadays. And you would scrape just at the right angle this tip of the bottle from the between the two pieces of curb. And if you did it right, that top glass ring would pop right off, perfectly clean. Most of the time you wound up with a broken bottle. That's why most people didn't use this technique. I preferred the poker chips. But there was another little art to that. You had to scrape the bottom to smooth it out. And the smoother the bottom of it was, the better the, the more flight you'd get, the more distance with each hit. So the other sound you would hear were kids scraping these chips on the sidewalk. You basically used the sidewalk as sandpaper. And you would glue two or three of these chips together and smooth it out. And you'd hold on to this baby because if you had a good chip, if you had a good checker, you didn't want to lose it. So the main premise of this game was to hit your checker from box one all the way to the last box. I, if I remember correctly, there were 12 boxes. It could have been more. And these were chalk-drawn boxes. One time someone actually painted one with spray paint, so we had this permanent checkerboard on our street lasted all summer. And there was all sorts of strategy involved in this game. If the, uh, the player who went before you missed their box, you could then aim your checker at theirs and knock their checker out of the way while trying to get yours into your box. So there was all this little strategy and aggressiveness getting out on each other, and it was a whole good harmless fun under the hot summer sun. One of the most prized discoveries was the empty cardboard refrigerator box. Nothing lit up our eyes more than finding one of these babies lying on the sidewalk, awaiting the many transformations we would put it through. You see, there's a life cycle to the fridge box. It starts as a clubhouse and ends as the perfect way to crack open your head. And every step in between was pure joy. See, the fresh, clean box would usually tower over our heads. We would lie on its side and crawl in, our excited voices echoing within the walls of our very temporary clubhouse. But we had little in the way of a club itinerary, and since sitting in a stationary box grew dull quickly, the first transition would occur. The bottom of the box, attached with a strong plastic strap, would be kicked off. It wasn't easy to do, but after a few dozen blows with our little kids, it flew off, leaving behind a tube of sorts. But this was no simple tube. It was a real, honest-to-goodness U.S. Army tank that was going to crush any fool who dared stand in our way. Basically, it worked the same way as a hamster wheel. Three of us, usually me, Scott, and Christopher, would stand on all fours side by side and walk like three dogs. The box would turn and tumble, 
getting easier to pick up speed as the square shape morphed into a rounded pipe. By that time, this great cardboard machine of terror would be rolling at 70 miles per hour down as smaller kids screamed in horror, running out of her way, and adults would kick and curse for us to go down the street with that, you pains in the aspirins. It was awesome. From the safe interior, we would charge forward laughing at the sounds, cries, and curses penetrating from outside. Then with a crash, we'd smack into a parked car, and like synchronized swimmers, we'd reverse, turn, and seek more havoc down back towards my stoop. I remember one amazing summer day where there were two refrigerator boxes found, so we had twin clubhouses and dueling tanks. It split up two and two and battle on the sidewalks of East Harlem. But then, well, the cardboard would wear out, less cardboard does, and we'd end up with one long giant strip of cardboard. What could we possibly do with that? <laughs> yeah, there was always something else to do. Yeah, the tank was conquered and rendered dead, but that large rectangle of smooth, pressed pulp would be laid upon the surface of my stoop, rendering the steps of my building into a perfect slide. We raced up to the top and butts down, slid down, the edges of the step beneath the thin layer of cardboard rattling our tailbones. The laughing would echo down the street, and here was when other neighborhood kids would want to join the fun. But like anything in life, all good things come to an end. The long cardboard slide would tear in half. The slide portion of the day had ended, but not the life cycle of the ever-transmogrifying fridge box. There was one more game in the process. It had one more thing to offer. Now, with two or even three sections of well-worn, highly flexible cardboard, it was time for stoop luge. We would take our own personal slice of fun, sit on it and hold the front end with both hands, the board curving back around our feet. Down we would slide, bumpity-bump, side-by-side racing. True, we would sometimes flip out and tumble down the steps. Tailbones would be bruised or elbows bloodied. Then the final bits of cardboard, no bigger than confetti, would be tossed aloft, and as it rained down like celebratory paper in the Canyon of Heroes, a solid hunk of the day could be checked off in the memory books of our minds as fun had. So these were the uh, legal games we played in the next episode of Stoops of Atlantis. I'm going to get into some of the more nefarious forms of entertainment on those East Holm streets all those years ago. This has been the Stoops of Atlantis with Mikey D. Stay tuned for future tales and bizarreness from that ancient land called East Harlem. Check me out on Facebook. <laughs>